you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you or do not own a Bible, there are Bibles that are in the seat uh, backs and right in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to, to take that Bible home with you. That is our gift to you. But if you're using one of those few Bibles, it's page 901, page 901, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the doctrine and practice of the Lord's table. We are still in our mini-series, taking a break from the Gospel of John, looking at pillars of the church. We agree with the Reformers that there are certain biblical uh, matters that must be in place in order for a church to be a biblical church. Uh, We talked about the preaching of God's Word Uh, We're in the middle of talking about the administration of the ordinances, and by implication of that administration of the ordinances, we are going to talk about those who are qualified to administer those ordinances. We're going to talk about elders, and then by way of talking about elders, of course, we talk about the offices of the church, so we'll need to talk about deacons as well. Uh, And uh, then um, we will talk about church discipline and and what that is all about um there's confusion over that today some people hear that and they're um you know concerned about what we mean by that but we hope to bring some clarity to that in the coming weeks but for this morning we're going to be looking at first corinthians 11 verses 23 through 30 if you're able to would you please stand as i read the word of god aloud in our new testament reading first corinthians 11 23 through verse 30 I'm reading from the ESV, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took up the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You may be seated. That is the word of God in the New Testament reading. May you may be a blessing to you as you've heard it read, both in the Old and New Testament. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, this morning we pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words in the original autographs, would now illuminate believers' hearts to uh, a seeing and an understanding of this and an application of these truths this morning. Uh, Lord, we believe that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the same Holy Spirit, all who are in Christ, united to Him. And so we ask, Lord, for that special provision this morning of the Spirit in our understanding. We pray as well, Lord, for the conviction of the Spirit on those who do not know You. Uh, Lord, that those who would uh, need today to uh, turn from their sin and trust in Christ might do so, that Your Spirit might be convicting them and drawing them to You. And we pray. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to humble me, that you would get me out of the way, and Lord, that we would only see uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. pray this in his precious name. Amen. 
one of our children, when uh, they were younger, and uh, they're not here this morning because of Amber, they're seeking to uh, help her, but I won't give away anyone's name uh, lest uh, I hear and uh, receive the fury for that later. But uh, as we would practice the Lord's table in our church um, as they were growing up, uh, much like we do today here at Fellowship Bible Church, we encourage parents not to let their children look at the Lord's table as some sort of a, a snack as the, they see the bread being passed, as we typically have done in the past, or the, or, or the, or the uh, cup being passed, that, that they would not uh, let them uh, see that as some sort of a just mid-morning snack before lunch, but that they would understand what it is that we are participating in. And we encourage you as parents to do that with your unconverted children, that they might see that, that they might understand it. But we also say maybe that's in the moment or perhaps that's uh, later on. Well, in the case of this child in particular, we learned that it should have been later on uh, because of uh, their reaction as uh, the, the bread was being passed and then more so as the cup was being passed. Um, because Amber was explaining to them uh, the uh, the bread and the cup, and as she explained the representat- representation of the bread, meaning the body, as we'll talk about this morning of Christ, and the and the cup, um, referring to the blood of Christ, um, this child became uh, quite frustrated with the fact that they were unable to participate in this, and they shouted in the midst of church, "I want to drink the blood." So there was some understanding there, but um, as we shall see this morning, not quite there. And of course, uh, waiting for them to come to faith in Christ, as is appropriate uh, to participating in the Lord's table. And so why is this such an important part of what we would say is a pillar of the church? As the Reformers would say, you cannot have a church without the Lord's table. I was listening to S. Lewis Johnson, as I often do on Sunday mornings, to hear his take on a passage before I preach it. Appreciate his preaching ministry so much. And uh, he said, you know, this is uh, one of the places in the Scripture where uh, the Lord gives such specific instruction. It's found in the Gospels. It's found in uh, 1 Corinthians here. And he gives very specific instruction about this. So, um, S. Lewis Johnson rightly says, along with others, that we ought to pay close attention to this. And so uh, we need to do that this morning. Uh, let me give you the main point this morning. This was written for you on the back of your worship folder there, if you have that in hand. If you happen to receive an email with those notes, it's, it's for you in there as well. Jesus gave us a practice by which, by which we remember, rejoice, and reflect upon his first and second coming. Jesus gave us a practice in the Lord's Supper by which we remember, we rejoice, and reflect upon his first and second coming. And of course, we're going to flesh out this morning the meaning of remembrance, of rejoicing, and reflecting uh, for uh, our participation in the Lord's Supper. It almost feels criminal for us not to be taking the Lord's Supper this morning as we learn about it, but that's the way that it uh, falls uh, in, in our calendar. But um, perhaps this will um, give you some uh, a little bit more fuel to your fire, if you will, uh, the next time we take the Lord's Supper together. And I want us to see this morning four aspects of the Lord's Supper four aspects of the Lord's Supper, at least how they are drawn out here 
uh, when Paul gives these instructions to the Corinthian church. And, and we are, I recognize, jumping into the middle of a passage in the midst of a context in which we have some understanding, if we're familiar with 1 Corinthians, that this is a church that has uh, had some practices that need to be corrected, uh, very much so if you've read the, the book of 1 Corinthians or studied it at all. There are some things that need to be corrected, and so Paul is bringing correction here, and we'll see that a bit in our passage as well, even though it's not particularly in the verses that we look at together this morning. But we first see the setting. The first aspect we see of Paul's instruction about the Lord's table is the setting of that in verse 23, the very beginning of that verse. He said, For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul received this from the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He gives us the setting here. The setting. Um, The setting in which Jesus gives us this instruction. The setting in which Jesus takes what Brett read from Exodus this morning and applies that to the new covenant people that will be uh, a part of his new covenant church uh, once he has been uh, crucified and resurrected. Uh, first of all, we notice this phrase, Paul received it from the Lord. Does this mean special revelation from the Lord or that he learned this from the other apostles? One commentator whose name is Kistemacher wonders the same and says that either option is fine, but he leans towards, the, uh, towards Paul receiving it from the other apostles. Now, it certainly could be one or the other, uh, but, but regardless of that, it is from the Lord Jesus instituted this at the Last Supper. Jesus is the one who introduces this meaning in accordance with the progress of revelation of who he is as coming as Messiah. It is from the Lord. It is from the Lord. He is the one who instructs us. He is the one who establishes this meaning of the the Passover meal, uh, which we participate in today as the New Covenant Church, Uh, And we call it the Lord's Supper because he's the one who institutes it. But he also gives us this setting. It says the night that he was betrayed. The night he was betrayed. This is the night previous to the crucifixion. Why does Paul mention this, his his betrayal? What has led to this moment? Well, we can... uh, Think about that in regard to perhaps the entire canon of Scripture. What has led to this moment? Well, it's, it's been from Genesis chapter 3, a post-Genesis 3 uh, world that uh, Adam has fallen and, 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 and brought uh, humanity into sin with him. And we'll certainly see that. Uh, but in regard to the life of Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus, we recognize what has led to this. Jesus has come into the world, the eternal Son of God puts on flesh, eternally God, um, uh, yet now puts on frail humanity. He lives his life, though truly God, now also in his incarnation as truly man. A mystery, yet for the sake of our reconciliation to God, because of our sin, this is necessary. He lives his life perfectly. Uh, He he, uh, in no way sins and, and yet is despised and rejected by mankind, as Isaiah prophesies. He has done no wrong, and yet the leaders reject him as the chief cornerstone, as Peter reminds us from the Old Testament. Even though he has done signs and wonders in their midst, they accuse him of being empowered by the devil. They cannot deny 
the miraculous signs. They cannot say that they have not happened. They've seen people who were lame now able to walk. They have, in fact, by John chapter 11, seen the dead rise. And yet they say this is by the power of the devil. They cannot deny the power of the miracles, the signs of uh, pointing to who he is. And it leads to this moment before the cross. The cross where he will give his life a ransom for many. Here he sits with his men at a table, the Passover meal, a foreshadowing of his death, and yet a remembrance of God's freeing Israel from slavery. A joyous occasion of freedom, foreshadowing the release of sinners from their slavery of sin. But here at this supper, that signifies all these things. Judas is going to betray him to the very leaders who will march him to a false trial and then to the cross. As the early church father Christosom says, remember that this was the last mysterious rite he gave unto you. And in that night on which he was about to be slain for us, he commanded these things. And having delivered to us that supper after that, he added nothing further In other words, as we consider the setting here that Jesus is uh, going to be betrayed, he has even announced this to his disciples, uh, that he is going to be betrayed. He's going to be turned over to be put to death. This is his last instruction to us, and therefore we must not ignore it. In other words, this is his last command before the cross. As such, we ought to pay close attention and not minimize the importance of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Some say the practice of it too often would minimize it. In other words, if we were to practice it every week, which I think we should, by the way, if you want my opinion, that, that if, we pop, if we practice it too often, we would minimize it. The Lord does not give us a prescription for the number of times we ought to practice it, but it is well known that the early church would make it a weekly practice. Listen to what Dr. Mike Spiegel of Dallas Seminary writes. He says, In the early church, the Lord's Supper was observed every Sunday as the climax of the church's worship. It was administered by the pastors or elders of each local church associated with the proclamation of incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and accompanied by prayers of thanksgiving, confession of sins, and offerings of material goods for those in need. End quote. And speaking about this with a couple of my family members, my children particularly, one of them remarked on how the idea of weekly communion helps with keeping short accounts with God. For in it, as we will see, we make confession, do we not? Particularly, and we ought to be keeping short accounts with God. We ought to be confessing our sins regularly to uh, the Lord. But what a way to confess weekly, corporately, as we sit at the Lord's table and consider how He has forgiven us. By the way, um, we don't think that it minimizes anything when we take the offering every week. The importance of that. Why not the Lord's table? I rest my case. Now that we've looked at the setting and the importance of this ordinance in the life of Christ in the early church, let's now look at the ordinance itself. And, and there's much more that could be said, by the way, about this. There's, there are many points that I will not be able to touch on this morning due to time. And you'll say uh, by the end of this, boy, you took a lot of time though, didn't you? Um, but, uh, but there are so many things that could be said about the Lord's table that we cannot get into this morning. But I do want us to highlight some of those important things. The setting of it, the importance of it, as the Lord is the one who has given it to us on the night that he was betrayed. He is about to uh, go to the cross. And this is the last command he gives before he goes to the cross. So we need to see the importance of it. 
We then see the ordinance itself. Secondly, we see the bread. The bread. I don't know why whoever put the verses together in the Bible decided to put verse 23 as it is, but he did take bread, end of verse 23, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took bread. This may be what is called the afakoman, the after supper bread, and it quite literally means the dessert. Um, not that it's sweet or anything along those lines. In fact, it is quite plain, but it's after supper. Perhaps that's what it is. If it is, the significance is that this is the last bread eaten during the meal and nothing else is to be eaten. Therefore, it, if it is this, it, it draws out the significance of this moment as Jesus is um, doing this with his men. Luke records Jesus as saying, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover uh, with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke twenty two fifteen and 16. In other words, or, or a way again, if we think about this being the last bread of the supper, he is signifying here is the end of this, but there is something yet to come. Keep that in mind. Footnote that. Put a pen in it. Highlight it if you like to highlight your Bible um, in Luke chapter 22 there. Uh, because Jesus says he will not eat of it again until... And we must keep in mind that until. So perhaps this is the last of the bread for the Passover meal. The last time he will eat this supper before he welcomes us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He then says, as he breaks this bread, this is my body. This is my body. As many of you know, this phrase has caused no little amount of issues over the centuries. This small phrase, this is my body. What does Jesus mean by this? Um, in fact, Richard Barcellus argues that this was a bigger issue during the Reformation than even the issue of salvation by faith alone, if you can imagine, because that was the issue of the Reformation. But the Reformers couldn't even agree on what is meant by this is my body. The contention lies mainly over the directness of this phrase, this is my body. And maybe you're familiar with the teachings of the different churches over the years concerning this issue of this phrase, this is my body, but I'm going to unpack this a little bit for you this morning because it's important for us to understand it and to understand where we as a church land. The Roman Catholic Church believes that Christ's body is actually present in the elements. The compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, question 283, asks this question, what is the meaning of transubstantiation? And that is what they believe about the idea of the body and blood of Christ. This is the answer to that question. This is Roman Catholic doctrine as they would understand it. Transubstantiation means the change of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of Christ and of the whole substance of wine into the substance of his blood. This change is brought about in the Eucharistic prayer through the efficacy of the word of Christ and by the action of the Holy Spirit. However, the outward characteristic of the bread, wine, and uh, that is the Eucharistic species remain unaltered. Now, let me just break that down for you. They believe that somehow uh, the, the body of Christ and his blood are really present in the bread and wine. But, they would say, when you are to take that, uh, and and uh, technically, you're not even going to drink the wine in a Roman Catholic context. They would just give you the bread. I'll explain that in a minute. But when you take the bread, it 
turns into the body of Christ somehow mystically. But it doesn't taste like flesh when you eat it. That's what it means that the characteristic of it doesn't change. But it does really become the body and blood of Christ somehow. They take this very directly. This is my body. And um, the issue with the blood, with the wine, is that they are fearful. This was figured, this was kind of put into place sometime in the 1400s. They're fearful of what might happen if that wine were to be corrupted somehow or even spilt. I have a, a church history uh, professor who said that he has seen when there has been, even in the Eucharist, which by the way, the word Eucharist isn't a bad word, it just means thanksgiving. And we are giving thanks at the Lord's table. But at the Eucharist, in a Roman Catholic context, he's seen, even without passing around the wine, the wine being spilt on the floor and the priests getting on their hands and knees and licking up the wine because they don't want it to, the blood of Christ to go to waste. It is a miraculous change according to the Roman Catholic Church. Then you have the first of the reformers. You have Martin Luther. Luther believed it was it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for Christians to eat and drink. So listen again to the words because it's very important. He believes it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us to eat and to drink. Now, while this might sound similar to the Roman Catholic position, Luther did believe differently than the Roman Catholic Church. My friend Joe DePong, who is a Luther scholar, he did his master's work on Luther and the Eucharist. So he literally wrote his, his master's works on the issue of Luther and the Lord's Supper. Uh, he says that he recalls the majority of Luther's writings on the Eucharist were simply, there, here's some Latin for you to throw around and impress your friends, hoc est corpus meum. Christ says, Christ says it, we must believe it. it. It looks and tastes like bread and wine, but it must somehow also be Christ's body and blood because Christ said it was. But he was opposed to transubstantiation. Still quoting Joe DePong here. He was opposed to transubstantiation primarily because it was a human philosophical attempt to explain Christ's words, but couldn't be scripturally proven or defended. Rather than using nominalist philosophy to explain scripture, we should simply believe the words and not go further. In other words, if Christ says it directly, we have to understand it somehow, but it can't be transubstantiation because that doesn't make any sense. But, but, but whatever it means, it must mean what Christ says it means. Therefore, somehow his body and blood are present there, but not the way the Roman Catholics say it. That's kind of the Lutheran position. And if it sounds confusing a bit, Luther um, like wrote on this his entire life as a, as a believer and kind of kept motiv- moving his position. So Then there's another man named Huldrych Zwingli. Uh, you may have heard of him. Uh, you may have a cousin named Holdrich Zwingli. I don't know. Well, Zwingli and Luther debated over this idea. Zwingli rightly argued that Jesus was not uh, being literal in his words, but metaphorical in the same sense that he is not literally a vine or bread, as he calls himself. Some wrongly say that Zwingli thus only held to a memorial view of the supper, meaning that there is uh, no spiritual benefit from taking the supper at all. That's not what Zwingli believed. But Zwingli says, to eat the body, now I'm quoting him, 
To eat the body of Christ spiritually amounts to trusting with heart and soul in the mercy and goodness of God through Christ. That is, to have the assurance of an unbroken faith that God will grant us the forgiveness of sins and the joy of eternal salvation for the sake of His Son who gave Himself for us. So, when you come to the Lord's Supper to feed spiritually upon Christ, you thank the Lord for His great favor, for the redemption by which you are delivered from despair, and for the pledge which reassures you of eternal salvation. So he saw it as a confirmation of our salvation. And I don't think he's wrong in that. I don't think he's wrong in us understanding, as I will explain in a a little while, uh, that, that this is a confirmation for us. It doesn't do anything for us in the sense of saving us, but we need assurance of faith. We believe that when the word of God is preached, that there is an assurance of faith. At least I hope we believe that. We believe, as we talked about last week, or we should believe that as someone is baptized, there is an assurance of faith before their conscience. That's what Peter says. And that we who participate by observing that are blessed in that way as well. And when we come to the blessing or the time of thanksgiving at the Lord's table, there is and ought to be an assurance of our faith. Not because God is imparting to us saving faith, but because He is imparting to us uh, the grace that comes with understanding what He has done as we participate in it. Then there is also uh, uh, John Calvin's view. Keith Matheson summarizes this well, saying, According to Calvin, the sacraments are signs. The signs and the things signified must be distinguished without being separated. Calvin rejects the idea of the sacramental signs as merely symbols, for example, Zwingli. So he goes a bit further than Zwingli. But he also rejects the idea that the signs are transformed into the things they signify, for example, Rome. Calvin argues that when Christ uses the words, This is my body, the name of the thing signified, the body, is applied to the sign, the bread. So he's, he's not saying that there's something mystical in the sense of that it turns into something, but, but that this is what Jesus gives us to understand that his body is real, that he, he really has a body. Uh, by the way, in order for Lutherans to understand what they do about the Lord's Supper, they believe that Jesus is not only omnipresent in his spirit, but he's also omnipresent in his body. His body is everywhere present as well. So that way it can be present in the bread. Calvin disagreed with this and said, no, the sign that you hold in your hand, the bread, signifies the body. It's a sign pointing to the fact that what? What do we believe, dear ones? Jesus is risen and sitting at the right hand of the Father. What does he have today and he will always have for the rest of eternity? A resurrected what? Body. Right? The sign points to the reality. Does Jesus right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, have a truly resurrected human body? You can answer. Yes. That that is part of our faith, dear ones. So uh, Matheson continues, Zwingli had argued to eat and drink the body and blood of Christ was simply a synonym for believing in Christ. Calvin begged to differ. He argued that the eating of the body of Christ is not equivalent to faith. Instead, it is the result of faith. Calvin often used the term spiritual eating to describe the mode by which believers partake, but he is careful to define what he means. He asserts repeatedly that spiritual eating does not mean that believers partake only of Christ's spirit. Spiritual eating means, according to Calvin, that by faith, believers partake of the body and blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who pours the life of Christ into them. Now, I don't understand exactly what that means, okay? Um, But what 
Calvin is trying to get at is a spiritual participation in, in the, at the table. That we spiritually participate with Christ in this activity. How can we agree with that? Well, we can because we are, it says in the scriptures, united to Christ. And what is our union with Christ? Through His Spirit. Through His Spirit. I prayed it earlier, you've heard it earlier. The Holy Spirit indwells all true believers. When we sit at the table together, we participate together in that spiritual nourishment, if you will. Finally, Matheson says of Calvin, in regard to the Lord's Supper, it is given to seal the promise that those who partake the bread and the wine in faith truly partake of the body and blood of Christ. Calvin explains this in terms of the believer's mystical union with Christ, what I just mentioned. Just as baptism is connected with the believer's initiation into that union with Christ, the Lord's Supper strengthens the believer's ongoing union with Christ. Not in the sense that somehow we can lose it, but how does it confirm and assure us that we are united to Christ? Because we recall that his body was real. That his blood was truly shed for our reconciliation, for our forgiveness of sins. So clearly finding our roots in the Reformation, we reject both the Roman Catholic and though Luther is the father of the Reformation, ultimately we reject the Lutheran view as well. Many would lean towards Zwingli and others toward Calvin and some in between. But we must see that this is more than just memorial. Because memorial does, not, memorial does not explain why you look forward to the Lord's Supper. Memorial does not explain to you the idea of communing together as the church. We call it communion. And it's about communing together as the church with Christ in the event. And even Zwingli, who many memorialists would say they they lean on, says it's more than that. More than just simply remembrance. And we'll get into that in just a minute, if I have time. He says, my body which is for you. This is my body which is for you. The idea behind the sign is that Jesus gives his body for those who would one day trust in his life, death, and resurrection. His real human body is placed upon a real cross, and his real blood is really shed for the forgiveness of sins. The ongoing reality of that is we have participated with him in a death like his. Romans 6, chapter 3 says we have participated in his death. How do we today signify, remember it's a sign, that we have participated in his death? If you're in Christ, you should be baptized. Baptism, we we talked about this last week, signifies that by the act of baptism, this is why we emphasize immersion, right? That we were buried with him, having died with him, we were buried with him and raised to new life. In the participation in the Lord's Supper, we take this symbol, this sign that points to his real body that was shed. And we drink a cup that symbolizes the the blood that was really shed. And we participate in that once again, not in any sense other than the idea that we are remembering and rejoicing and reflecting upon this reality. And it does strengthen our faith and our assurance. And it ought to. He says, do this in remembrance of me. What is the purpose of remembrance? Well, in one sense, looking back. What is the event? His body is given. His body is real. His body is still real and glorified. 
He gives us a tactile element to hold. But his human body, as I mentioned, is in one place. Yet one day we will be able, think about this, to hold him. What are we reminded of when we hold the bread? Which he says is a sign of his body. His body is real. And one day, dear ones, we will get to hold him. We will get to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a joy to think about. And he will not shy away. He will embrace. So we're reminded that his body is real and that it really was placed upon a cross. But we remember that resurrected body that one day we will get to touch as well. Thomas, come see the hole that is in my hand and come see the hole that is in my side. Touch it. And we remember this union with Christ. We hold that bread. We remember that his body was given for us and that when we believe we are united to him in that death. But we are united also to him in resurrection, as Romans 6, 3 says. What does Romans 6, uh, rest of Romans 6 say? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. That's the other thing we remember when we come to the Lord's table. We are remembering, we are rejoicing, and we are reflecting. What are we reflecting upon? We're going to talk about this in a moment again. Reflecting upon the confession of sin... And that as Romans 6 says, we walk in newness of life. It's a renewal for us when we come to the table. It's a renewal for us to say, yes, this is the reason why I live my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he died, uh, he lived a life that I could not live. He died in my place and he rose again. And now I must too walk in newness of life. The Lord's Supper is a renewal of that. We are conscious of that newness of life that we are to live. We are made aware of it once again. Again, a good reason for weekly communion. Clearly, I didn't rest my case. Well, the Lord not only gives us a sign of his body, which was broken for us, but also the cup in verse 25. Look at verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, or the after supper cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In the same way, these are together. Jesus takes both the bread and the cup and distributes them. The after supper cup, this would have been wine. This would have been what Jesus says he would not drink from the vine again until the time of the marriage supper of the land. And and, and he says that as he does this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We understand from this that Christ is not actually saying that this is his blood, but that this is a sign of his blood that will be shed for the inauguration of the new covenant. And we cannot miss the importance of this here, the new covenant in his blood. Why is this so crucial? Because Christ here is telling his disciples that this is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and onward. All the signs which point forward to this reality are now coming to fruition in the shedding of his blood. As he says in Matthew 26, 28, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness, 
for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why is that so significant? I mean, we could look at the uh, book of Hebrews once again and, and understand the importance of this as we have in the past. Where it says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But also where it says that the same sacrifices were offered day after day and year after year. And yet there was no finality to the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, says, as he's establishing the Lord's table, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the final bloodshed. He says, do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. The same idea as before. Jesus gives us something to drink. There is a, a tactile and a taste to this. And as we drink that cup, we remember that not only his blood was shed, but we remember that he too drank a cup. Remember in the garden, he says, Lord, if it is possible uh, for me, let this cup pass. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The bitter cup that is spoken of in the Old Testament prophets. The bitter cup is the wrath of God. The justice of God upon the cross. And as we say in olden days, he drank it to the dregs. The cup of bitterness. The cup of the wrath of God. The cup by which he would have to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins is the cup that we participate in when we come to the Lord's table. We come to that table and we drink something that reminds us of the, the bitterness of the cup that he drank. The blood that was necessary to be spilled for the forgiveness of our sins so that the justice of God, uh, the, 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 the wrath that, de, that sinners deserved was poured out on him. And then the grace of God that is poured out in us when we receive the forgiveness of sins by that same blood. We are reminded, we rejoice, do we not? We rejoice in that spilled blood, though it was innocent blood, though it should have been us up there. We recall we rejoice and we reflect. We reflect on the fact that his blood was real, that it was blood that was given for us. And therefore, we are assured, are we not, brothers and sisters? We are assured of that sacrifice and its meaning and its totality and its completion. Though, we do await the day where he will eat and drink again. That gives us hope for the future. As we look back, we also look forward to that marriage supper where he will eat and drink again. And guess what? We, if we're in Christ, we will be with him. It assures us, yes, to, uh, to encourage us to walk in newness of life, but it assures us of eternal life as well where we will sit down with that at that meal. As we do with Christ present at the meal, when we sit down together now in communion with Him and one another, we will sit down in His physical presence. Think of that. We are given, we are given bread, and we are given a cup, and it reminds us that one day we will sit down in communion with Him. Somebody's really excited about that. Amen. I, I want to cry tears as well. 
And he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Same idea as before. He gives us something to drink. It is required. Uh, the blood being spilled is required for him receiving the justice that sinners deserve. Lastly, we see number four, the reasons for coming together and doing this. In verses 26 through 30. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. <clears throat> we see here that there have been sort of three elements to this. The remembrance, the proclamation, and looking forward. Remembrance, looking back upon what has already happened and all of what that means concerning the new covenant fulfillment in Christ and, and, and all that we've talked about in regard to assurance of faith. Proclamation. In what way are we proclaiming Christ's death until he returns? To whom? Well, certainly it's a proclamation to the unbeliever who observes. If we are having the Lord's table, we warn people who are not in Christ to not take of the Lord's table, but rather to observe what is happening. And by observing us uh, proclaiming Christ through the, the bread and the cup, that he uh, died on a cross, that he shed his blood, that he rose again. It is a gospel proclamation. Uh, which, by the way, uh, we talk about pillars of the church, um, and we talk, we'll talk about elders um, here upcoming. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. We are to be proclaiming the gospel uh, to the unbelievers, yes, while we're gathered, but also when we go forth into our community. So it is an assurance and a walking in newness of life, and it is a, a casting of seed when we leave here. It's a remembrance to us to go forth and proclaim the gospel to the world as well. As we are reminded of what Christ did, we go forth and proclaim it. As we take it, though, we proclaim to the unbeliever in our midst, but it also is a, a proclamation to us. It is a proclamation of the gospel to the believer. Why? Because we go back to what we said earlier. It is a, a, an assurance and a call to walk in that newness of life which we already are in. But there's also a forward looking to this we're to proclaim this until he comes. Richard Barcellus in his book on the Lord's Supper says, The Lord's Supper is anticipatory. It not only points to the past and ministers grace in the present, it also points to the future when the Son of God will drink of the fruit of the vine with us, as I mentioned earlier. It is a forward look. There is also, though, however, a reason of examination Verses 27 through 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We are not to eat the supper in an unworthy manner. In the context, Paul is reprimanding the church in Corinth for coming together for the love feast and the Lord's Supper. And there are those who are eating everything up and drinking everything up and not considering those who are arriving later for the meal or without anything. This needs to be repented of in the context in which Paul is speaking. And also in the greater context of what Paul is saying is that this is a time of confessing sin and reconciling with our brother, remembering that Christ has forgiven our sins and reconciled us to God. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are not to come in an unworthy manner, which means that we come with a heart that is willing and ready to confess. 
to confess our sin and to make sure that we are reconciled to our brothers and sisters before we take. Why? Because Christ has forgiven us. We remembering of, we remember that and therefore we confess our sin because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and because he has reconciled us to himself. And in this sense, we do it together when we gather together to commune with one another and the Lord. So we are confessing, we are reconciling, we are communing with one another and with the Lord. In all this, we remember that these are a means of grace. All these parts that we've been talking about. Again, Barcellus, he defines means of grace in this way. The means of grace are the delivery systems God has instituted to bring grace. That is, understand what he means by that. Spiritual power, spiritual change, spiritual help, spiritual fortitude, spiritual blessings to needy souls on the earth. Grace comes from our Father through the Son, by the Spirit, ordinarily in conjunction with these ordained means. It is a communication to us from God. Just as the word of God is, so too is baptism in the Lord's Supper. And finally, as the Second London Baptist Confession summarizes well our study, listen to the summary. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches. Uh, They don't have this part, but in brackets, weekly. Unto the end of the world... For the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. I love that. This is the practice for those who are in Christ. And the practice of this local assembly. And we ought to keep these things in mind when we come to the Lord's table. But the invitation is not extended to all. If you have not trusted in Christ, we do all we can to keep you from the table lest you eat to your own destruction. Therefore, our call from the table of the Lord is to observe what is represented when we take the bread, the sign of his body, which is given for sinners. And take the cup, the sign of his blood and the new covenant, which is for all who believe in him. And we call unto you and say, believe. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, there was so much in this this morning. So much more that could be said but so much already said. I pray, Lord, that you would take away anything that is distracting and that only the heart of the gospel as we see represented in the Lord's Supper would be remembered. As it is, Lord, to us, a remembrance, a nourishment of our faith, a strengthening of our faith, an assurance of our faith. Something we participate in together as we commune together and with you a place of confession, a place of rejoicing, a place of forward-looking, Lord, we say, come quickly. And yet we pray for those who may not know you that as they've heard this gospel message by way of the Lord's Supper, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.